podcast has bad words. <laughs> all right, y'all. Here we are with Jason Freed. He's the author of It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. We're going to talk about his book, but before we do that, I want to read some more about Less. This little segment that we do, Jason, uh, where we basically find an article and use it as a jump-off point. We can disagree with it. We can agree with it. <laughs> Uh, this one is from slow.co by Kyle Kalowski, and it's called Busyness 101. Why we are so busy in modern, why are we so busy in modern life? Seven hypotheses. And I, I mean, I venture to say there's probably more than these seven, but I thought it would be worth discussing at least. Seven hypotheses for why we are so busy today. We'll put a link to this article in the show notes as well, because I'm certainly not going to read the whole thing. Number one, busyness as a badge of honor and trendy status symbol. Oh, yeah. Isn't that the truth? Like, it it, it, In fact, I always hear people, a good friend of ours who's been on the podcast, uh, Dr. Ryan Green, every time I see him, I run into him all the time. I'm like, how's it going? Just so busy. And I'm like... Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, "What? No, that's a, it's a good thing." And and for him, it is. He's got some exciting stuff going on, um, and and it's not busy for the sake of being busy. But I think that is the problem. We are often busy for the sake of being busy. You know what? I mean, it's, it's on our book on the cover. I think it's super busy. It's what everyone always says. Like, it's super busy. I'm yes. super busy. Mm, and yeah. You know, here's the thing with busy. Like, that's the worst superhero ever. <laughs> I'm super busy. I'd help you, but I'm super busy. You guys, should, you guys should run with that. That's a good one. Super busy. Yeah. Um, the thing is, is that like busy usually means bouncing. It's it's I, it's like if you're occupied on something, you don't say you're busy. Uh-huh. You're busy when you're jumping between things and you're rushing between things and you're going from here to there and you're out of with, control. You're out of control. That's yeah. what busy really is. And if you're just like focused on something and just thoughtful about it and work, you don't say you're busy. You're like, I'm doing something great. That's what you kind of say. Or, I'm working on something. You say I'm working on something. One of our most popular essays uh, is an essay called Not Busy, Focused. Yeah, there you go. Okay. And, and, and because I try to delineate between the two, you can be immersed in something and it apes the form of busy work because your time is occupied. But it is not working for the sake of working or or letting other people necessarily dictate your to-do list because they've bombarded your inbox or whatever. Totally. And 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 I think if if you were to look at someone who goes, I'm super busy and and you know, if you looked at their calendar, you'd go, Yeah, you're super busy. Because yeah. there's all these different colored blocks and your whole day is blocked off and you have no time to do anything except what the colors say. You're playing mm-hmm. calendar Tetris is what we kinda call it. <laughs> and uh, and you know, uh, of course you're busy because you have no time. That's why you're busy. You're shoving yeah. things into empty spaces that you barely have, like versus having four hours to think. Like I, one of the things, whenever I go talk at a conference, I'm always like, when's the last time you had four hours to yourself? You know, audience and, and no one raises their hand. Mm. That's sad to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like four hours to yourself at work, like just to think. Like when do you have time to think at work? People don't have time to th- even think at work. They're always yeah. just doing. Well, you talk about it in a book yeah. how, how yeah. offices are set up to be distraction factories basically mm. and, and and this really resonated with me you're like where do you go to get work done and it's usually not the office right. i remember like after i would finish a full 10 11 hour work day i would then go to a coffee shop to actually get work done right. at 7 p.m mm-hmm. because now it's time to actually catch up on the work by myself and it was like 
much more calm. And even in the book, you talk about like, then you might even go into the office on the weekends because it's not even, it's not an office then. It's just a quiet place for you to actually get work done. Yeah, no one's around. So people end up working when no one's around, either early in the morning or late at night or on the weekends or on a commute. That's why people like, people go on on a flight you know, people, people say like eight hours isn't enough. I hear this all the time because we work eight hours. It's not enough. It's like, well, have you been on a flight from Chicago to London? Because that's about eight hours and it's fucking long. Yeah. <laughs> and by the time you're like, you look at your watch, like it's only been four hours. Oh my God. And you look at it again, like it's got to be over now. It's only been five and a half hours. Like it's long. It's long because it's contiguous and there's nothing else to do. Mm. No one's bothering you. Right. And so it's long. But a work day doesn't feel long because everyone's taking your time from you. Mm-hmm. And that's why you're busy because you have no time to yourself. Yeah. Number two here is busyness as job security. Ooh. So uh, it's an outward sign of productivity and company loyalty. Mm, yeah. It's nasty. You were talking about that earlier about how you were always the first one in mm-hmm. and the last one to leave. Look how hard I work. Uh-huh. You'd be stupid to fire me because I work so much. Right. And, and <laughs> the, the weird thing is, like, I, I actually did get a lot done early in the morning but it was because more of what we just talked about it was like there there were fewer people there to distract me we had something called meeting mondays oh which God. was exact we had nine meetings on a so monday funny. i was thinking about this it too was nine hours straight i was watching your tedx yeah. talk yeah oh. <clears throat> every monday was meeting monday so we had a, a, a we had a pre-meeting meeting uh at uh, like 7 30 a.m and then at eight we had a 90 minute meeting that was like our our Monday morning huddle and and reviewing the numbers from last week oh and my the God. month to date forecast to date. yeah what is your forecast what are you going to do to make it yeah and it was as you write in the book it's when you have eight people in a room and for us we had about thirty people in the room mm-hmm. it wasn't it, it wasn't one hour it's thirty hours of company time thirty hours yeah for right. that all of that stuff could have been written down right? oh yeah and read at your leisure uh-huh. when you had time. Well, part of it though was one of our bosses like like to berate people publicly oh, in order to prove a like, yeah. like hey if you if you step out of line you're not if you're not hitting these unachievable numbers yeah. Yeah. then I am going to make an example of you in front of all the leadership team. Yeah, well, that's just that's just sad. Yeah, and evil. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was thinking I was thinking about that when I was uh, watching your TEDx talk. It reminded me of meeting Mondays, and I was like, could, we could have just canceled that meeting. Like there was no reason. To have thirty people in, the, yeah, yeah. could have canceled all of them. But the only reason we did it, it was it was to show face. It was yeah, it was to break people. But also, um, you know, for some reason, our our uh, boss's boss felt like, you know, if he didn't have the meeting, he wasn't close enough to us. And that's yeah, there's like this perceived value that just isn't there. Yeah, this whole thing is this is not any of the employees' fault. This is management's fault and ownership's fault to to create a culture or an environment where people feel like they have to be seen to be to be valued or they have to be yelled at in order to make a point like you as an employee in this case you just have to kind of roll with it but that's not like that's management's fault Mm -hmm. and and it's dysfunctional flat out dysfunctional it's a shitty environment it's a crappy place to be you don't want to be in a company like that you don't want to be in an environment like that um and that's not something you're probably gonna be able to change that's something much higher up that is ingrained in management like what happened was whoever's feeling like they need to yell at people well they were yelled at when they were an employee coming up and so now they have the power and they're going to use that power. Right. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah. and it becomes this uh, this sort of self-perpetuating cycle. Yeah. It, you know, it's uh, you're uh, abused as a frontline worker, so now you're going to be an abusive boss. Yeah. And 
and what a terrible cycle. I, I know here, uh, what I've done is pulled forward any of the things I felt that were useful or value adding from the corporate world and, and removing the things that I found to be distasteful. Like we very rarely ever have a meeting and Whenever we do, I start the meeting out by reminding people that we're getting absolutely nothing done in this meeting. Uh, it's necessary for these reasons. Let's make it as quick as possible. Um, but realizing that the real work happens outside of this meeting, this isn't actual work. This isn't uh, productivity or efficiency or anything like that. This is simply a meeting. We're gonna, we, we think this might be the best way to communicate this information very quickly, but it is not the point of what we're doing, the work that we're doing. Yes, it's and, and there are times when being together and communicating verbally like this is better. Mm. I just think it's it's the exception. Right. It's not the rule. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Have you read uh, Cal Newport's Deep Work? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. so um, we we're good friends with him. He's he's uh, we've done a few tour stops with him. He's been on the podcast and yeah. and the things I, I learned from him are, are that we are basically just. Um, we're busy because the modern world has become a distraction factory. And by the way, we've always struggled with distraction. The Stoics, when you go back to the Stoics and they're like, get rid of your books, they're a distraction. Mm -hmm. And now we're like, I yearned for the time to be able to sit down and read a book, right? <laughs> And, and It's all it, relative. Right, yeah. it is. Yeah. Except now the biggest difference is uh, 2000 or 2,500 years ago, the Stoics didn't have, there weren't teams of engineers behind every book that were engineering the book to suck all of your attention throughout your day and, and, and constantly notify you uh, of any time there's some sort of update. Yeah, the world today is optimized for engagement. Mm -hmm. And that is what's broken about it, yeah. is, is it's manipulative, it's addictive. That's the world we live in. We live in an addictive world right now. Every piece of technology we have is about addiction. It's about looking at it longer, keeping it in your face longer. And uh, it, it's broken. It's stealing everybody's time. And and once you're addicted, it's very hard to break. It's very, very, very hard to break those addictions, mm -hmm. um, as as it is with any addiction. And if you don't feel like you're addicted, well, then don't do. Put your phone away for a week, and you're gonna feel, you know, that that feeling of 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 separation, that feeling of withdrawal. You're gonna feel it, and then you, that's how you know. Yeah. Yeah. Put put the yeah. phone away for one trip to the Sorry, convenience yeah. Yeah, store. Even, even. Yeah. Don't take your phone with you when you go for whatever. Yeah. And it's like you're gonna be. Where's my phone? Where's my? You're yeah. gonna feel a, a buzzing. It's not good. It's unhealthy. But yeah, you're right. Books were not built. Books were built or written to 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 teach and to educate and to share, not to keep you there. Right. Right. Um. So anyway. Yeah, and uh, I've I've heard the smartphone. Someone called it the seventy ninth organ, and, <laughs> and because like we feel like we we can't go anywhere without it. I mean, it's yeah. in my pocket right now, and and uh, yeah. uh, we we've gotten we've gotten comfortable with the distraction, but that doesn't mean the distraction is good. Right. Yeah. You can tweet that podcast, Sean. Hey, All right, now number three, uh, busyness as. FOMO. You write about FOMO and uh, Jomo. Jomo. <laughs> joy of missing out. Jomo. Let's talk yeah. about that. I mean, this is a bigger thing. I, I like, for example, I don't follow the news. I don't follow my industry. I don't follow the news. I just, I don't need to know these things most of the time. I mean, like, if there's like you know a hurricane and I'm living in an environment where there's a hurricane, okay, I should pay attention to that. Sure. When in Chicago, you probably shouldn't. Right, Chicago, <laughs> I probably shouldn't. And there's so many things that were so focused on that we don't need to know about all day long and right. and and it creates an anxiety in your mind because the news is all bad pretty much mm -hmm. not that it actually it is it's just the news that's shared with us is all bad right you know it's not, there's a lot of good news but it's 
not shared. The good news does not aggregate eyeballs the same right. way the bad news does. There yeah. you go. So, so I've kind of just tuned out to those things, and I I love missing out on stuff. And like I'm not up on cult. I, I don't watch a lot of shows. I don't know what's going. My wife's in the show. I'm like I don't know what that show is. Like I don't know. So I can't have those conversations with people. But I'm okay with that. I don't yeah. need to have those conversations with people. I can have other conversations with people. So. Mm-hmm. I enjoy missing out on things, and we encourage people at work to miss out on things. This, this feeling that you need to be paying attention to everything that's going on at the office. And it's gotten worse with the advent of, of chat. Um, and, and chat has sort of infiltrated a lot of companies now, and it's terrible. It's a terrible way to work because mm-hmm. we're now paying attention to many real-time conversations all the time. They're pulling us away from our work because there's a new dot indicating there's a new conversation, a new update. You don't even know what it's for. You have to go read it to find out if it feels worth reading. And it's pulling us away constantly. And, and you're feeling like, I need to stay on top of things. No one should feel like they have to stay on top of anything other than the thing that they're actually paying attention to. Yeah. yeah. That's hard. It's gotten hard to do. It works. So we're very careful at Basecamp to not create environments where people have to feel like they're on top to be on top of things. We don't want to create the obligation or the expectation that you're going to be quizzed on things, essentially. Just pay attention to the work you have. There's one thing you're supposed to be doing, and that's enough. Anything else should be uh, should be optional, essentially. Yeah. Ryan and I often talk about what is enough. And and I think it's a question we, we all, you, you write about it in the book, uh, but we don't ask this question most of the time because of the demand for nonstop, never-ending growth, especially in the corporate world, but even in, in our personal lives, it's about it's it's about growing for the sake of growing and and not growing necessarily growing responsibly or, or anything like that. It's just about well, I guess I'm supposed to grow, so let's grow. And uh, in fact, like one thing we did with with our Patreon audience. Shout out to all the patrons listening to this. Um, we're capping it at 6,000 patrons. And yeah. because we said, hey, th- we figured out what is enough to pay Podcast Sean, pay Jordan no more, pay Social Jess, and, and pay ourselves some money and, and identify what is enough and also uh, uh, not need to constantly feel the pressure of like, well, let's 10x this thing. Mm. I love that you guys are doing that. I didn't know that. It's a great thing. And I think... Um, Enough is is fundamentally important. Um, even with personal growth, there's this notion that we all have to be personally growing all the time. I you could take a break from that too. Like just exist for a while. It's yeah. okay, you know. Like it's okay to to coast for a while. It's okay. These things are okay. You don't need to be getting better all the time. I don't think at least. Yeah. Like you just take take a break. It's good, you know. Um, and and um, you know something we've talked about at base camp, although we haven't done this yet. My co-founder and I disagree about this a little bit right now, but. I like to cap the amount of money we can ever make from a particular customer. So, for example, if a customer ever paid us at most five thousand bucks, like once they paid us, like Basecamp's ninety nine bucks a month, okay, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter how many people you have, so we have some caps there. No one can pay us more than anybody else. But let's say you've been with us for five years and you basically paid us five grand. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to say that's enough. Like mm-hmm. you don't need to pay us anymore. You get Basecamp for free for life. That that's was great. enough to pay us. We're cool with that. Um, so we're kind of thinking about that sort of thing. How can we just cap the amount of money we make from someone? Mm. And we do it at the low end by no one can pay us more than 99 bucks a month. But like, as, as you stay with us for a while, we should maybe cap that too. I, I, there's enough people out there to pay us other, you know, to, to, keep, us, to keep us in business mm. than having to constantly make more from one customer. Yeah. So anyway, I think it's an important notion. And everyone's line is a different place and whatever, but but I think it's a really good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's see here. Let's, let's do a couple more of these. Busyness as a byproduct of the digital age. We already pretty much talked about that. Busyness as a time filler. We talked about the calendar Tetris. 
Uh, busyness as necessity, working multiple jobs to make ends meet while also caring for children at home. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes there will be seasons of life where things are, are necessarily going to be busier mm-hmm. than, than other seasons um, out of necessity. And I, I would argue out of all of these, that is the, the best excuse. But even then, even your best excuse is often still an excuse. And we can still find ways to be less busy. I, I saw a study very recently that talked about how we are becoming less and less fit as Americans, but it's not because we are actually busy. It's because we have, we're spending more time in front of glowing screens and less time uh, using our body in, in some, any sort of mobile way, right? We're, we're just staring at these, these, these glowing screens that are extremely titillating, but, but they aren't necessarily uh, making us healthier or bringing more meaning, joy, satisfaction to our lives. We're sedentary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, except you. You're standing. So. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 we're, we're getting we're getting unhealthy as we sit here. I mean, there's a lot of sitting going on. There's a lot of sitting and there's a lot of staring. And mm-hmm. those things can't be good for you. They just simply can't. They're not. And they right. also simply can't be. Um, so yeah, it, it, the things that we're into these days, shows, phones, you know, work. Mm-hmm. These are all sedentary uh, things. Yeah. And so the things that, that are popular right now like are, are, are about staying still. It's not probably good for us. No, yeah. it's not. And, and it's finding that balance. Like what I'll do when we have a standing desk in our other room here. And like Sean and I were working at it yesterday. It's a little one-person office, but the two of us were in there working on a few paragraphs together. And and standing at the standing desk, I'll set an a, a alarm on my phone every 20 minutes. And I'll just do some squats yeah. and uh, do a, a few little uh, stretches. And I find that you can do that. And it just takes a few moments. We had Ben Greenfield in here couple weeks ago and he's always doing like yoga poses randomly stretching like he and and he he's cognizant of it and i think one of the reasons we're so sedentary is we just want to think about it it's sit down and then plan ourselves in front of that screen the last thing we have here is busyness as escapism um Mm. we want to escape the hard work because hard work is hard right it can be simple but it's still it can still be difficult. Simple isn't necessarily easy. And so what do we do instead of simplicity? We complect our lives. We, we complect their com- complexity is just means we weave a bunch of things together. And so we'll weave in the tweets. We'll weave in the Slack conversations. We'll weave in the email inbox. We'll weave in the scrolling on Instagram. Yeah. And we've weaved all these things in. We're really doing it to escape or avoid the work that actually needs to get done. Yeah, like, here's the thing. I mean, breaks are good. Sure. I mean, people used to take smoke breaks and no one had a problem with that. You know, like 20, 30 years ago, you go out for a cigarette for 15 minutes or whatever, and that's like, that was cool. No one, like, I mean, it wasn't good for you, but like, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was in some other respects that you got to get away from work and, and, and socialize a little bit. But, um, so breaks are, breaks are important. Um, I, I just think when you, when you take a break, um, the thing is, is that I think what you're getting at, which is that we're, we're, we're f- like the work is the bricks and then we're, we, all this mortar, we're just kind of mortaring bricks together with, with, with like quick activities because we can't be bored anymore mm-hmm. and we should be. Yeah. It's funny, like my five-year-old, I've got a five-year-old son and he told me a few days ago he was bored and I said, that's amazing, man. Like, I wish I could be bored. It's been a long time since I've been allowed to be bored. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking to myself, you're going to not be bored soon enough. Uh, this is a special time, actually, to be bored because at some point, you're not going to be bored anymore. Your days are going to be more full. You're going to have one of these devices at some point in your life or something's going to happen. You're going to be able to fill your time with other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really admired the fact that right now he's a, he's bored and it bugs him, but I he doesn't know how good he has it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the thing that I will tell adults, I wouldn't tell this to, to my six-year-old daughter, but like, if you're bored, you're boring. And, and <laughs> be, because uh, we, we don't have to distract ourselves, right? But some of the, the most boring, I say this in sort of vocal quotes here, uh, experiences are also some of the most profound, whether it's you know, meditating or, or just going out for a walk with no music or podcast in your ears. Like those are ostensibly boring, but that's quite often where a lot of the, the magic of life happens. Oh, totally. It's like why great ideas come in the shower. There's like just this this moment of like you can't really check your phone in the shower, right? Like the shower is a sacred and now place. With the iPhone 11 oh, apparently. Shit. Oh my god. That's right. God. They're waterproof, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Well, um unfortunately it might be true, but you can't see the screen cuz it's got like bubbles on it and stuff with water. <laughs> but but you know the shower, like the 15 minute shower in the morning is is a precious time because you can't be distracted by anything. You've got white noise. It's 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 a it's a it's a important place. So I think I think um yeah, I agree with you with the board thing, but I think that like think instead like just take yeah. something i've been trying to do is if i'm in line anywhere or online people say i've always said in line but some people say online i don't know anyway when i'm in a line the the reflex is to go in your pocket grab your phone and look something up like i i've decided never to do that anymore i'm just gonna stand in line uh-huh. like mm-hmm. i'll just wait my turn and just wait even though that that impulse wait and observe yeah is there we we, we are sort of um uh, what was the, it's a reflex? The, yeah, the, we're programmed. Yeah, like boom, boom. It's a yeah. habit. Boom, boom. But it, but the being, habit is like I need to occupy my time. That's the habit. It's yeah. like I don't even care what it is. I I just need to. Versus like, can I just not have anything to do? Yeah. And just observe. Yeah, I would you argue know? like, or not argue, but I I would posit like standing in line at Chipotle, for example. Uh, it gets really, really long. Everyone's on their phone. That is, you know, for all intents and purposes, that's a pretty boring experience. But being able to be comfortable in that moment, like that is, it's almost a superpower these days. You got to practice that yeah. because you got to break the habit. But I've yeah. found it to be really interesting. You just stand there and observe and listen and think and whatever. And that's just, a, it's, it's one of those times that you can actually do that again. And, mm-hmm. and I, so that's kind of the habit I've been getting into. Yeah. Yeah. We got a question from Olivia in Philadelphia. You all talk a lot about adding value or, you know, staying within your values. And I'm having a hard time just identifying mine. I'm currently in a career, you know, I'm heading towards a promotion, one that could drastically change my financial future um, and allow me to really give back to my parents and um, set myself up and my family for um, success. However, in order to do that, I'm pretty much having to work seven days a week, every week. And um, as someone who really values self-care, I'm having a hard time with that. You know, I deal with anxiety. (laughs) I'm trying to strike a balance there. And I'm not really sure how to do that. And I'm not really sure how to figure out, you know, how to align my values with that. You know, do I take a day off or do I just keep working towards that goal? I'm not really sure how to strike that balance. Olivia, there are two reasons that we don't really understand our values. The first one is we don't stop to ask the question, what are my values? And so you, you're, you're covering this right now. You're, you're asking that question. You're trying to determine what your values are. And I think that's really important. I think the second reason, though, is equally important, is we don't realize that some values 
are more important than others. And in fact, some of our values aren't even real values. They are imaginary values, things that we've put a lot of emphasis on or the culture has been has put an emphasis on or maybe your workplace has put an emphasis on. And they're not necessarily your values. They are an imaginary value. So uh, real quick, I'll, I'll go through. In fact, yeah, if you go to theminimalists.com slash V, like the, the letter V for values, you can find a worksheet there where you can you can download and you can fill out what your values are. And uh, it will also explain to you the difference between the four types of values that Ryan and I have identified. If you look at a house, a house has a foundation. It's always built on a foundation. Those are your foundational values. I think they tend to be similar for all of us. Health, relationships, creativity, um, some sort of growth or improvement we tend to value, and then contributing beyond ourselves, giving to other people in, in some capacity, right? Uh, and you may have others in there as well, but I think those are five that you can, you can build a really solid foundation on, right? And then beyond that, you have structural values. So a house has you know, all, all of the, the beams throughout. It has to have a firm structure. Uh, otherwise, it's going to crumble, right? You can have a beautiful facade, but a, a really shitty structure and all of a sudden you're in a world of hurt because it's going to come collapsing down on you. So you have those, the, the structural values, what I would call your personal values, and those change for each of us. Um, and, and, and so you'll see some examples there on, on the website as well. You, you can see some of my examples of what my personal values are. And then beyond that, you have the surface values or the facade. And like I said a moment ago, you can have a really beautiful house, but if it is rotting on the inside or is built on a shoddy foundation, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. And the problem is we treat those surface values, which make life more interesting, they make life better, but we treat them as if they're paramount, as if they're the foundation, but they are not. And if we build a life on the surface values, then we're, we're not going to feel fulfilled because they're not as important as having a good foundation. And then ultimately, they're imaginary values. This is, these are things that make the house worse, but we think they make the house better. Scrolling Instagram incessantly is an imaginary value for most of us. Now, maybe it's a surface value for you. I, I don't know. That, that's the beauty of determining your own values. But you have to figure out, because these imaginary values are actually obstacles that are preventing you from even getting into the house in the first place. And so the first thing I would do is identify what your values are. Go to theminimalists.com slash V, check that out. And then the only other question I would ask you, if you're gonna be working seven days a week, getting this promotion, what's gonna set you up financially, is it worth it? Because yeah, maybe you're gonna make money, but is the cost of that money actually worth it for you? Yeah, I mean, she she wants to give back to her parents. That's great. I think that's a very admirable thing. Um, but at what cost? So yeah, I totally agree, Josh. She's got to get clear in her values. And then the decisions that she makes has to be in alignment with those values. I mean, anytime we're making decisions and like we feel a little twinge and we're like, oh, we know this is going to hurt later. We know this, we know that we're going to pay for this later, but we're going to go ahead and just do it now. Um, it, the more decisions we make like that, well, the more we're setting ourselves up uh, just for this pressure cooker situation where we're in a tornado and we're like, Oh, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, right now, uh, you know, maybe it's just a little miniature tornado. Like she, she can take control of it now instead of, uh, yeah, diving, diving in head first. I do. I mean, sometimes there are some temporary things. Like I know when Josh and I were in the corporate world, I temporarily was working 70, 80 hours a week. 
I was going to school. I was writing for the minimalists and there were some really long weeks in there, but I knew that that wasn't sustainable. And I was clear that there was a point where I was going to uh, not have all of that on my plate. So yeah, there are some seasons where you're going to have to work more than others. Um, but, but look at it like that as a season. I would only add two other things. One is that everything comes with a trade-off mm-hmm. and, and remember like you're going to work seven, seven days a week to, to, to help your parents. Like sounds all great in a sense, but like you said, what's the trade-off? What's the cost of that? So in any decision you make, I think it's always good to feel, what am I trading off in this decision? I never just get stuff. I always have to give something mm-hmm. to get something. So just thinking about that. The other thing is that the thing that's always helped me is to figure out, to figure out like a value is what will I say no to? That's the thing I always, like, yeah. would I say no to that? Would I say no to that? Would I say no to that? I remember when I was doing client work way back in the day before I launched Basecamp, I was doing website design for clients. And there's some clients that um, I could tell were just really difficult to work with, um, but they were going to pay me a lot. And I just got really good early on saying no to them. I'm not like, I'm not going to take on that client. The money is not worth it Mm -hmm. for the headache, for the, for the abuse. You know, I just, no, that's no. And that helped me define like what I stand for. Like I don't stand for, um, income. I don't stand for revenue. I don't stand for measuring up against some dollar amount. I stand for like making sure my day is worth it to me. That's that's not the only thing, but that's an important thing for me. Is my day worth it for me? Is it worth it to do this work for what I'm getting? To be yelled at, berated, having to respond to people at 11 p.m. where I get yelled at the night? No, no, that's not worth anything. So that's what I'll say no to. So what's the trade-off and what we say no to are the two kind of tools I've used to figure out where I stand. Yeah. I would say that, yeah, just to sum that up, it, your values are often defined by what you're willing to say no to. And then to sum up what you were saying, Ryan, is uh, you talked about actions making, because you can have all these values, but then like, I think I had values that I, I understood in my twenties, but my actions didn't align with them. And that is a recipe for discontent. So a meaningful life occurs at the confluence of actions and values yeah and tweet that podcast sean <laughs> all right <laughs> we got some uh some more questions here ryan who do we, what do we got we got humanus the crazy at my job comes from the process and competing priorities of other areas e.g. legal, or managing my work to fit the time constraints of those who have to okay my work at various points. How do you reduce the crazy over which you have limited control? So, I mean, I think obviously uh, this person, she saw the title of your book and and was like, hey, it's crazy at my work and and here's where it is. There there are a bunch of different processes uh, and of course there are competing priorities. And that is, that's a recipe for crazy making right there. It is. Yeah. Um, this is a structural thing. This, there's probably not a lot she can do about this, to be honest. Um, this is something that has to change higher up. And I've, I know that's not the best news, for, <laughs> but, but just it's important for, for management and ownership not to continually change their mind all the time. What ends up happening in a lot of companies is the leader, whoever it is, if it's a leader of a team or a leader of the company, has an idea and they, they say, let's do this. And then they two weeks later, they have a new idea and they pull people off that thing, but they still expect that other thing to get done. So magically. Mm. So magically. Like, yeah. let's do, also do this and let's also do this. And I got a new one. Like, it's okay to have these ideas, obviously, but you've got to let things finish first. So at Basecamp, um, we, we set up what we call six-week cycles. 
So um, we decide what we're going to do for the next six weeks, and we're going to do that. We're going to stick to it unless there's a true emergency or something like goes wrong. We have to stop. We call it pull the circuit breaker and like fix a problem. Um, but otherwise, for those six weeks, that's what everyone's focused on. And everyone knows it. And no one's pulled away. This is your, your thing. This is your project. You figure out how to get it done. You have six weeks to do it. And you can focus entirely on that and never, ever have to worry about ever being pulled away. Mm. Six weeks is over. Work is done. Now we decide what to do over the next six weeks. So if I have an idea on week three, my idea, even though I own the place, has to wait. It has to wait till the next cycle to be considered. Yeah. That's how you get some sense of, of, of um, or some semblance of, of calm. And and you not you don't have to you don't have to feel anxious about being pulled away and then still being responsible for something else. So we see things we see things through, and the key to that is that six weeks is enough time to see almost anything through. But it's also not so much time that you'll feel like you'll never get to that next idea. Again, I think we're kindred spirits. We, Ryan and I do something very similar. It's a much more protracted time frame, but we tend to work on one big project a year. Yeah, and so our six week cycle is a year cycle. Sure. Um, and occasionally there will end up being some overlap because the film we've been working on, we've been working on it for almost three years now. Yeah. And so like that has, uh, has sort of butted its way into the book that we're writing now. And so there, there, there's a little bit of overlap, but, but actually this is the first time I think ever we where we've had overlap on big projects. So in 10 years it's happened once, but we focus on one thing. Uh, and then everything else we do serves that thing, whether it's the podcast or writing on the website or social media. You know, we're constantly trying to find ways to add value, but not in ways that forsake the thing that we are working on. And so again, saying no quite often, not just for the sake of saying no, because that can also be a trap. If you're just saying you become the vice president of no, then it becomes a uh, a bureaucratic. Uh, you have bureaucratic Tourette's in a way yeah. where you're just like no, 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 no. Th that doesn't help either. It's saying no for the right reasons because you're saying yes to something that is far more important. Yeah, and when you're low on the totem pole, like it's still okay to push back a little bit ah, and to yes. say and to say, uh, yeah, I I would love to do that. Here's what I got now. So do you think that I should? go ahead and do this? Is it okay if I say no to this and focus on this? Or So yeah, it, you're right. You don't want to just say no. You want to say uh, you know, yes and if you can. Yeah, and you want to speak the language of trade-offs, mm -hmm. um, which is someone says, now do this. And you say, well, I, I understand you want that too. Um, should I not do this? Mm -hmm. Like, can I not do this now? Like, because I, I, there's just not enough time to do both well. Yeah. And they might say, well, do it. And, and like at some point... You, know, you don't have the power in the situation. You may have to do what you have to do, but mm -hmm. but just getting used to speaking the language of trade-offs yeah. because people understand that. When you say like, not like, um, I don't want to do this, whatever, just like, that, that's a good idea, um, but I, I'm working on this, so should I put that aside? Yeah. And then that other person go, yeah, that's reasonable. You can put that aside. Then you don't feel like you're on the hook for two things. Yeah. So it's, it's subtle. It's a subtle way of just flipping it back to the person who's asking and then letting them make the choice, letting yeah. them make the decision versus just accepting that whatever's thrown on your plate, you have to do also. Yeah, yeah. no, I totally agree. It's, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a subtle way of setting boundaries. Yeah. And that's, um, it's so important. And you, yeah. like I said, you can totally do that as yeah. the lowest man on the totem pole. Do the employees who work at base camp realize how good they have it? Huh. I don't know. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, hopefully like we, you know, my, my, my interest is building a company that I want to work at. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, like as you own you own a company, but it's also your day job. So like I want to create a place where I want to work. And hopefully the people who work at Basecamp want to work the way I want to work, which is reasonably working, you know, being able to stay focused on things that matter to them, having really amazing benefits, having a company that takes care of them, having a company that's reasonable about mental health, all those kinds of things. Um, and, and, you know, we have 56 people at the company right now. 33 of those have been with us currently for more than five years. Mm. Something like 22 of the remain of those 33 have been with us for more than seven years. I think there's 10 have been with us for more than 10 years. In our industry, that's extremely rare. So I think people not only feel like it's a good place to work, but that it's our responsibility to make sure that it remains a good place to work. It's not enough to go like, this is a great place to work. We pay you well and we give you these things. Like that's not enough. You've got to create an environment where people can do great work, where they're autonomous, where they have some agency over their day, where they have their whole day to themselves. and we're not unreasonable with our expectations. And we did, we haven't taken outside money because I don't want to be you know, beholden to someone else who's a billionaire who wants to get richer. Right. Um, and, and we don't have any time frames. We don't have any goals that we have to live up to. We don't have board meetings that we have to deal with. We just can do the best work that we can do. And we find people who are wonderful at their work and are, have wonderful character. And uh, we all get to work together and stay together as long as we can. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Dark Mode has four questions for us. I, I don't know how this person <laughs> snuck in four questions here. but uh, uh, In the middle of the night. Dark. Yeah. Dark mode. Here we go. How, how to balance work that needs to be done for the company or leadership versus work that you are passionate about? We'll start with that one. Um, well, I mean, so, so here's the thing. Uh, and you, you, I think you touch upon this slightly in, in the book. Um, where you don't have grandiose visions of, of uh, putting a dent in the universe and changing the world with your work, but you help some customers do something, and that's enough. And and I, I think that maybe we have to think about, when, when you say, you know, if you're at work and you're saying, well, uh, the company and leadership want this expectation well you're gonna have to do that That, that's what you're working there for now if there's something that you're passionate about that might fit under the umbrella of that business Mm -hmm. then you can certainly present that to leadership and say i'd love to add value in this way it's something i'm really passionate about i did that a bunch of times at at the telecom company that we worked at and uh, almost always there are a few times that i was told no but almost always they were kind of okay yeah give that a shot or yeah we'll we'll try to put a budget together for that and if you think it's going to work and and it allowed me to do both as long as i was sort of serving my masters and their needs um i had the i had some leeway to work on passion projects as well yeah yeah you know like you said it is your job. People have to remember, like you, you go work at so, you work somewhere. It's your job. You have to kind of do essentially what you're told because the company needs you to do some things. But for example, let's say your one of your passions is like exploring new technology or new programming language. Let's say you're a programmer and you like to explore new programming languages. Well, maybe you can tell your your boss, your manager that you know, for this next project, can we try this other thing? You know, like can we try that or you know, or like sometimes you need to make time on the side for your passions. You can't yeah. just like decide that like. I'm employed by this company, therefore I get to use their time to do what I want. That's also not reasonable. Like, right. Let's not like get into this utopia situation. Like, you have a job, and hopefully your job is is good. Not every job is good, and not every day is great. I mean, like, not all work is fun. Right. Like, that's just work. You know, like I do stuff I hate. I don't like to do some of the things. I don't like paperwork. I don't like. <laughs> you don't like paying taxes. I don't like paying taxes. You don't like going through all that. <laughs> I don't like doing all that. I don't like dealing with with 
personality conflicts. I don't like to deal with these things, but like that's the job. And sometimes you have to do what you don't want to do because it needs to get done. And that's okay too. Like this idea that we're going to create these ideal, amazing places to work and everything's going to be right. It's just not realistic. And speaking to expectations, if that's our expectation, we're screwed from yeah. the start because that's yeah. just not life. Yeah. It's not going to be all ping pong and kabucha like no. you see at, at you know, Google's lobby or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's something in the Western culture that for some reason we feel like, you know, if our job isn't our passion, we're failing at life. And that's just right. not the case. Yep. I mean, sometimes you do have to work mm-hmm. and it's boring or it's hard or it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I totally agree. Like if you want to work on a passion project, then, you know, you might have to find some time outside of company time to work on that passion project. But, uh, but yeah, don't feel bad because you're doing a job that is just paying the bills. Like that's, that, that is okay. Um, if it's going against your values, like th- that's totally different. But yeah, sometimes work is work and it's okay to, to work. And actually I would kind of, you know, posit the same thing we were talking about with boredom. Like if you can actually find the joy in just putting in the work and being comfortable with that, you know, banal work that you have, like that's, that's a much better skill than trying to constantly be passionate about something. And the other thing too, is when you take your passion and all of a sudden you turn it into your job, that's often a way to kill your passion. I mean, it's totally possible where, yeah, you, you, you have this hobby that you love and you turn it into your job. Well, now you got to make money from that passion. Mm-hmm. You don't get to do it out of joy. You have to do it out of necessity. And you start compromising the things that made it a passion in the first place. Yeah. We have a, a good friend. Uh, his name is Paul. He, he has a band called Canyon City. And he um, he makes great music. He's one of the best songwriters I know. I mean, he just makes amazing music. Uh, and we did a podcast episode with him, episode 123. And the thing he talks about is he, he moved to Nashville from Fargo. Um, and like he, I'm going to make it in music. This is my passion. I'm going to turn it into my career. And he found himself like writing jingles for corporations. And like, it made him actually hate the music he made for himself because he was forced to like make this sort of vapid trite commercial nonsense that didn't align with the person he wanted to be. And so it absolutely turning it into a career killed his passion the only way he got it back is he quit doing the jingle thing he went to go work at home depot Mm -hmm. and he made music on the side now he actually makes a full-time living from music and i mean how amazing is that but he actually take a step back and and show people how to build stuff at home depot for a while i love that it's such a great story you know sometimes the worst place to work if you're a baker, is at a bakery, mm, you know, uh, like go work somewhere else and mm, then bake at home Yeah, uh-huh. and then you'll love it. Uh-huh. If you go work, if you go work at a bakery, you got to make cakes you don't want to make. You got to make big, huge things you don't want to do. It's, there's no, there's not a, as much craft in it. You got to churn stuff out and you're not going to like it at some point. You're going to hate it. It's, it becomes menial or boring and repetitive. And it's just not interesting compared to like baking a great cake or making some bread or whatever you're into. Mm-hmm. Like do that on the side, save that for yourself. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that's really important. Uh, and I see it happen with with programmers uh, in my industry and designers who um, love love craft and love the art of it, and then they get involved with it, and then they hate it because they're working crazy hours or building stuff they don't really believe in. Mm-hmm. They've compromised their values, and and now like the the thing they used to love to do is is become the thing they hate to do. Yeah. 
and they have to go find something else and they, there's an emptiness now when they could have saved that for themselves like save something for yourself is i think a really good idea yeah number two uh dark mode wants to know how do you overcome imposter syndrome i think we're all imposters to an extent i mean it's what i mean by that is is uh as one of the minimalists like i still want to buy stuff i mean i still have impulses it's you know it's it's uh I remember when we first started the website, I I felt sometimes that like the imposter police were going to come up and be like, you're not a true minimalist. Yeah. You own, you own more than 50 things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, ultimately if you're, if you're being congruent with, with who you are and you're being genuine, um, even acting as if someone you want to be. So, you know, I think about, I'm thir- I just turned 38 years old. I think about my 40-year-old self and, you know, who do I want to be at 40? And I try to act as if I am that, you know, ideal 40-year-old self. I don't think I'll actually get to 100% the perfect 40-year-old person that I want to be, but I certainly will inch closer and closer towards it. And the more you can do that, the more genuine you do start to feel. I mean, now I don't feel nearly as much of an imposter, but, you know, I fly in airplanes and that bothers me. Mm-hmm. I don't know the alternative to that. What am I going to sail on a ship to go, you know... T- speak somewhere i mean it's it's uh there's not a good alternative so yes. there, there are yeah, <laughs> yeah right exactly submarine minimalist yeah. submarine <laughs> <laughs> well I, mean, I think what you're what you're talking about here uh, to a certain extent is lowering your expectations that's why we often mm. feel like a pos- an imposter is is we're trying to live up to everyone else's expectations by the way they're almost always conflicting expectations too right but if there are 10 different people you don't want to be an imposter toward but then they have 10 different expectations so you can lower your expectations you can raise your personal standards though and, and lowering your expectations raising your standards i think is a recipe to to live a more congruent life if you're living a more congruent life you're not going to feel like an imposter yeah i don't have much more to add i mean i feel like an imposter from time to time when i have to take on things i don't know how to do and i feel like i'm supposed to know how to do those things the other thing that's interesting is I feel like you can feel like an imposter in the other way too, which is I used to know how to do some things that I can't do anymore because my, I've, like, those skills have atrophied because mm-hmm. now I, I lead a company versus like before when I started, it was just me. I was making all the stuff myself. Now I, I don't do that as much. And when I have to go back to do that, I'm, I'm pretty rusty. Mm. So it's funny that you can feel like an imposter at something you used to be really good at, but you're not anymore. Just, I, I give everyone permission to feel that way. Like you yeah. don't need to not feel that way. It happens. It's fine. It's like... It, it, in some ways, it's 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 a, it's a, a good stand-in for drive. I mean, the fact that that like, if you feel like you're an imposter, you probably want to maybe be better at what you're doing, and that's okay too. But like, it's mm. it's it's all like you said, it's all about expectations, and and it's fine, and you're gonna feel that. You're never gonna get rid of that. I think most mm. people probably never do, and it's totally fine. It's a natural, normal feeling to have. Yeah, absolutely. Number three here from Dark Mode. How do you let go of your attachment to results and focus on the process instead? Mm. So I think that's how you enjoy the process more. <laughs> you can let go of the results. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's what that's the thing that we we often struggle with. It's about getting the thing done. It's uh, well, and that's even an acronym now, GTD, yeah, right? Yeah. So so um, we're, we're very focused. We're very result, especially in, in the corporate world, results oriented, yeah. not process oriented. I think the process, I've, I've come to realize, I didn't always believe this, but I've come to realize how, how important the process is because you can get to a result, but you can destroy everything getting there. 
right. you know, like morale and teams. Like, yeah, we we launched this thing, but everyone hates each other now, mm. and we can't do that again. Like, if we do that again, we're we're going to self destruct. Like, so the process is really important because that's what makes things sustainable. Results don't. I mean, of course, like in the business world, the result of being profitable helps you stay in business. Of course, like that's a result that you need to get to, mm-hmm. but. If you're getting there by trampling people, by by destroying morale, by doing all sorts of things that that are not sustainable, um, it's not the results aren't going to be uh, durable. And if they're not durable, you're done. So I've come to realize how important the process is, uh, and, and that's why I think you got to think about that way more than the results. The results have to be there, of course, like at some point. But if you're getting there the wrong way, um, it, it's a short-term thing. And if you want to be around for the long term, which is what we want to be. You know, we want, we've been in business for 20. Let's make it another 20 if we can. Um, and by the way, I want to do that because I don't think I could do anything else. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a serial entrepreneur. I, I feel like lightning struck and I want to you know, hold on to that and mm-hmm. do the best I can keep doing it. Um, and if, if, if the process wouldn't, if the process was broken, I couldn't do it for another 20. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's my take on it. Yeah. Ryan, you and I had a, a tyrannical boss who was very good at getting immediate results because of exactly what you talked about, trampling morale, making people work 80 hours a week and and uh, shaming people, guilt-tripping people. And it produced phenomenal. I mean, he, he produced amazing results. But also, people quit. They, they, mm-hmm. they eventually were so demoralized. Or they stopped even buying into, like, uh, there, there was no buy-in anymore. Right, there's a certain point where, like, he's you know, yelling at you and it just loses effect. Right. I mean, right. He, but he created such a horrible environment. I mean, he eventually got fired yeah. because good people were leaving and eventually the upper management realized that and they're like, oh, you're ruining this company. <laughs> you're yeah. ruining this division. Like you have to go. Um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really easy to set goals and to whip people into shape. But like you said, I mean, if you're going to ruin morale on the way there, then then yeah, the, the 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 process you should be able to find the joy in that. That's that's really kind of the secret, I think. Nicholas has a question here. In what areas of Jason's personal life does he take a minimalist approach? Oh gosh, <laughs> I'm trying. I have two kids right now, and my house is a mess. Uh-huh. And I like there's toys everywhere, and I feel so guilty about it. Um, um, Quick, I, Ryan, I, shame him. <laughs> <laughs> I try to get uh, out. Yeah. <laughs> I, tr- I try to, to figure out what enough is. I mean, to me, that's kind of the thing I'm trying to, that's the line I'm trying to toe, which is what is enough in what's in, in a given situation. Um, I try not to buy things I'm going to use once. I try not to like get the next generation of everything all the time. Like that kind of stuff is something I'm really working on. But that's more material things. To me, it's really about figuring out what enough is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's kind of a, a something I've really been paying more attention to over the last five years. Because it's very easy especially when you become financially independent to just buy stuff that mm-hmm. like it doesn't if i buy the new thing it doesn't really hurt me mm-hmm. right so then you know normally like not having enough is a way to prevent you from having too much but once you get to a point where you can have whatever you almost kind of want that's when it gets really hard because now there's nothing put naturally pushing back at you there's no li- i mean there of course are limits but like there are fewer of them yeah. mm-hmm. and, and that's when you have to really practice this and you ha- so you have to figure out what is enough what don't i need um Another thing I've, I've really um, watched myself on is one of the great things I think about um, stoicism, which I've been kind of getting a little bit more into, is is this notion of you don't want to be a connoisseur. 
Because if you're a connoisseur, you can only appreciate the best. Mm. And most things are not going to be that way. And so you can live by being, like, if, if you're only into the, the best, you're going to be upset most of the time with yeah. the things that exist in the world. Like, this is not the best water, and this is not the best glass, and this is not the best coffee, and uh, you know, like, yeah. that's no way to live. So I've really worked on not being a connoisseur. I can appreciate nice things, and I, and I do appreciate great stuff, but I've really forced myself, in a sense, to not seek out the best things but when i run into them to enjoy them yeah and that's kind of how i've been trying to do this dude i'm totally gonna steal yeah. that please because well, what well, I, I didn't make it up it's like 25 years old <laughs> 25 years old or whatever it is. well you know it's interesting though because we were talking about during the break about uh thai food yeah. yeah and it's funny how like you know i in fact um i maybe i did say this and if i did it was a slip but i have actually stopped saying things like oh I have, I, I, this is the best burger I've ever had. This is the best whatever. I'll say like, this is my favorite that I've had. Yeah, nice. But, but, uh, well, I think two things happen. A, um, it helps me be less of a connoisseur and where I can say, oh, well, this is my favorite I've had. But B, there's this missing out that I am invoking in other people when I say, oh, this is the best. Now they feel like, oh, now I have to go try that. Uh, otherwise I'm missing out on the best whatever possible. And I have to like it. Yeah. Now you're telling yeah. them what to like. And I do the same thing. So mm. I, that's a great thing to look out for. Like, this is the best and whatever. And I probably said it with that Thai restaurant. I'm like, no, <laughs> it's one of my favorites. It's yeah. a nice way of saying it. Yeah. That's actually a really nice twist, which I think does have a mental impact. Um, yeah. Because when you say something's the best, now someone feels like they have to exp- feel like, Maybe they don't get it, but now they have to fake that they get it because they want right. to tell you that it was the best, and yeah. now they're lying. And it's like, well, don't set up that that situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're in a culture that that really rewards these superlatives, where everything is the best, the fanciest, the nicest. And you're right; it is. It, it becomes a recipe for aggravation or annoyance because, oh my God, that coffee is only a seven out of ten, not a ten out of ten, and. And now all of a sudden, I, I, the, the source of my pleasure is now my source of discontent in totally. a way. And here's the other thing that, that it, I was looking at hotels. Yeah. Because I'm in LA, right? And I don't live here, so I just get a hotel to, to, to be here with you guys. So I'm looking at that and I'm comparing hotels. And one's an 8.6, one's an 8.7. Mm. And, and, and like, in my mind, I'm dismissing the 8.6 because why stayed an 8.6? There's an 8.7. Uh-huh. The truth is both of them would be just fine. It, they don't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And even a seven, it doesn't like none of this matters. Uh-huh. Like, is it clean? Is it, is it look, is the comfort, is the location close enough? Can I walk there? You know, is it not a complete disaster? Like it's fine. But we've, we've, we've gotten to this mindset where we're measuring things but with decimal points. Mm-hmm. This is broken. This 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 like trend is broken. Not, no hotel should be a decimal point away from another hotel. It should yeah. be called the same. Right. <laughs> They're the same. <laughs> These 24 places are the same. They're all good enough. Yeah. yeah. That's so we have to catch cuz even I was doing it. I'm like gosh, why am I even worrying about a decimal point? This is mm. broken, you know? When Ryan and I went on our first several tours, I think our first so 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, our first four tours at least. We've done nine in the last nine years. Um, the first four especially, like we, if we sold enough books in a bookstore one night, we'd have enough to share a hotel room. Uh-huh. And it was not, a, a, it wasn't an 8.7. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was, it was the, the travel lodge. Right. You know, and it was like, oh, I wonder how many roaches this one has. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, Ryan got bed bugs once. Like it, we, and that was extravagant for us. Um, there were times where we didn't sell enough books, and we would just sleep in Ryan's Toyota Corolla for the night, and that's how it worked out for us. And and now the hedonic treadmill we've adapted to, it, and we go on tour now, and, and like we don't stay. Although we accidentally stayed in fancy places in Australia. Uh, funny story. <laughs> podcast sean um there was a a breakdown of communication (laughs) so we were like three cities in and i'm like god we are staying in like these very luxurious hotels like what is up with that we had the first time we ever had a a road manager right so so in australia they i think we did like eight cities over there they gave us a a road manager he was awesome uh the the and and they booked all the hotels for us nicest hotels i've ever stayed in and and Sean told them so. Um, the, we, well, yeah, the road manager. He's like, well, you requested. Yeah. You, so I I went to Sean and I said, <laughs> hey, um, you know, let's just find anything that's above a, a four on Google, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not picky about the place. Yeah. You know, most Hampton Inns are four or above, sure. unless it's a crappy Hampton Inn. And and, and so we uh, were over there in Australia. And so Sean sent that information to them. They misunderstood and thought we wanted four-star hotels. Yeah, the road manager was like, well, you asked for four-star hotels. I'm like, we're talking Google reviews, man. He was like, so you're telling me you would stay at a four-star YMCA? I'm like, yes, we would stay at a four-star YMCA. And we're we're at like the Four Seasons. It's our whole crew. It's Sean and and, 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 and Jess. And um, what was amazing about that is like, then all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe I should do this all the time now. Yeah. And even we're on the road now. It's like Hilton Garden Inn is usually where we stay. Uh, not a sponsor, but uh, <laughs> like, in fact, it's strange. Like, whenever I stay in a Hilton Garden Inn now, like it feels strangely like home. We've stayed in so many of them. <laughs> but now, if I have to go back to the travel lodge, now it's because I've con- I've become a connoisseur of Hilton Garden Inns. Yeah. Uh, now I have to go back to the travel lodge. It's like, oh my god, dude! I was uh, in Ireland a couple years ago. A friend had flown me out to do like a speaking gig, and it was just me and my wife Mariah, and we shared like this glamping. Um, you know, no bathroom. It was no electric. It was this glamping style and three of us sharing a room. And I got to tell you, like at first I was like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. But then quickly catching that and finding the beauty and like being in this uncomfortable situation in Ireland. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's very easy to get caught up on the hedonic treadmill. But the more like I can make myself uncomfortable and find the joy in that, like it's I don't get so caught up on it. And you realize, hey, you survived. Yeah. Everything's fine. Yeah. Everything's cool. I got good night's sleep. I got a good story. Yeah. Like I know. will say that the four seasons pretty freaking awesome. Yeah, I mean they're, they're <laughs> nice, and it's okay to treat yourself. Obviously, yeah, it's the it's the moment when you can't not do that. That's uh-huh. the right. problem. Yeah, when you yeah. become a a prisoner at the four seasons yes. because <laughs> it, it, it is now it's either that or nothing for me. I have to fly first class. No, it's great if you can afford to fly first class and you make it a priority. And and by the way, Comfort Plus is is essentially first class, mm-hmm. but half the price. And we don't realize that. Like, am I willing to? Am I? Am I willing? Is the cost actually worth what I'm going to get uh, for for the you know additional money I'm going to spend on this? And then the question becomes: Is this the best use of that money as well? It's going to cost me five hundred more dollars to upgrade in, at a hotel or a a flight. What else could I do with that money? And don't yeah. and don't feel bad about treating yourself either. Yeah. No. Don't feel ashamed about that either. And and think about like 
hey, if I'm going to do something really important the next day, maybe I do want a really nice, comfortable night's sleep the night before. And in this case, I'll, I'll, up, I'll pay up for that. Or, or I've got a long flight and I got to get up early in the morning. Like maybe first class would be useful. Like it's a tool essentially. Sure. And, and that's fine. It's, it's all fine. All this stuff is fine. You know, don't, don't like make yourself feel guilty because that's another problem with it, with, with this whole thing is like trying to live up to, again, expectations and another standard that I will never overspend and I will never make a mistake and I'll never mm. pamper myself. It's like, now you're just feeling bad about yourself again. That, that That's not worth it either. That's That trade-off isn't worth that's it. That's great yeah. a prison on the other side. Yes. I'm not allowed to experience pleasure or comfort or I have to, no matter what, experience pl- all pleasure and all comfort. Yeah. Those are two sides of, of the same continuum where you are actually depriving yourself yes. either way. Yes. Yep. One more question here from Peachy. I'm a musician and my job is 24 seven. That's the story you're telling yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like I only get a break when I sleep or when I have no cell phone service so people can't contact me. What can I do to get some time to myself without feeling rude for ignoring emails and texts and phone calls when I need some me time. This is a narrative that we often create for ourselves is I'm so busy that, um, and and, oh, by the way, also, and this is the narrative I definitely created for myself, I am so indispensable, so important that I have to have the Blackberry on me at all times Mm. because people need me. I am so fucking important. I used to love that feeling. And then soon started to resent it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's the other thing where it's like, oh, yeah, now I've got, you know, I've, I'm running my own fiefdom right now, yeah. right? Um, but now, Ryan, I call it, you know, I was the vice president of who gives a shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because who, right. who really, and by the way, like the division is gone. We worked for and like the retail oh, yeah. stores were sold off to another company. And, and so it was, it was all ephemeral. And that's the thing I'll tell Peachy here is, yeah, it might feel important in the moment, but when you pan out a week, a month, a year, is what you're is that text you're responding to today important a year from now? It, it and is what does our friend Rob Bell say? Most emergencies aren't. Yeah. And, and the the thing that that Peachy needs to realize is that most urgent matters also aren't urgent. And many of these texts, it's okay to respond to them. But not to be expected. I know in your company, you did, you, you made some changes. We were like, we're going to respond to emails in two minutes. Yeah. Um, and that became a mm. a sort of self-importance in a way, right? And we backed off of it, right? Because the like, you could say, well, I mean, these are customer service emails. A customer wrote us, and and we were like, well, let's get back as fast as we possibly can. But what's the trade-off? The trade-off is right. people feeling like they have to manage queues, and if they if they don't get back to someone in three minutes. Instead of four, or they get back someone in four instead of three, then they didn't do as well as they could have. And it's like this created a, a, a chaos. And yeah. also pe- the people who are doing the work felt bad about themselves. Mm. So we're like, you know what? 15 minutes is enough because in most cases, and we can totally handle that. Like if you write us, you'll get back, we'll get back to you in about 15 minutes, which is still amazing because most companies yeah. get back to you three days later. Right. So like, so it's still fast enough. It doesn't put too much burden on people. And that was kind of the place we settled at. And that's fine. If it's 19 minutes, it doesn't matter. If it's 12, that's great. If it's three, even better. But it doesn't matter. We're not tracking it in the same way. Um, so, yeah, it, it is getting back to, to the question. It's like it's, he, he's probably creating this narrative that he's really, really important. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and every answer deserves an immediate response. Yeah. And this is something we push back on internally as well, is this expectation of immediate response. Modern technology creates an expectation of immediate response because sending the thing is immediate. Yeah. So if I send you a text, that was easy for me really fast. Why do I expect you to get back to me really fast? Well, because my experience was fast. Right. So you should like provide a commensurate experience on the way out. Yeah. But no, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, nope. You should get back to me when you're available, not when I need you to get back. In fact, it's really arrogant to, to expect someone to get back to you as fast as you reach them. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. It's arrogance. It's like, they'll get back to... Like, they'll get back to me whenever is actually the right way to think about it. And if it's an emergency, fine, but that should happen like twice a year or once a year, maybe yeah. like a true, there are emergencies, Sure, but if that's happening all the time, it's not, yeah. like you said. I, I totally agree. I, it's funny because like I, it's taken me a while to get here, but like I'll send Josh a text and he might not respond to me for a day. And I used to tell myself, I'm not important to Josh or he's ignoring me yeah. or he's mad at me. And like, I, I start to create these stories that just aren't true. Yeah. And what I've started to do is tell my sto- myself stories like, oh, he doesn't have his phone on him or, uh, yeah, maybe he's tied up right now. Maybe he's trying to spend time with his wife. Um, you know, maybe he's got an emergency he's taking care of. But I, And I do this with anyone that I reach out to, whether it's email or text. And there are some days where, like, I've got, you know, a couple emails hanging out there in a text and no one has responded to me. And I just got to tell myself, like, dude, like, A, I don't deserve people to respond to me right away. And B, uh, they probably have other things going on in their lives besides responding to me instantly. Yeah, the answer is they're, they're doing something else. Yeah, like that's, and that's okay. Because aren't you, what are you, sitting around all day <laughs> waiting for someone to text you? Right. You're doing something else too. Yeah. So we're all doing something else. Mm-hmm. And that other thing that we're doing is probably more important than the thing that other person sent us. And I'll get back to you when I get a chance. I'm not going to yeah. ignore you. And 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 it, it just bring, it just calms everything down. It takes a lot of the buzz and the energy out of the room when you're just like, this is an important thing in a company is to to not have this expectation of immediate response. Like people get back to you when they have a chance. And if you really truly need something right now, you probably, it's probably your problem for asking for it too late. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's the problem. You're turning this thing into an emergency. Yes. Yeah. Ryan, I love what you talked about with, you're essentially saying create a new narrative. You were creating this negative narrative. Uh, Josh doesn't like me. He's upset at me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, He thinks I'm ugly. Whatever it is. (laughs) And and all those things are true. Yeah, and PG, <laughs> <laughs> of course. But you know, Peachy is creating this narrative uh, without myself feeling rude. How do I? How do I? How do I give people space without feeling rude? Well, stop feeling rude, Peachy. Yeah. Like the only one who's making you feel rude is yourself. And I'll tell you what, though, uh, when I first like I put my email in our book, everything that remains. And I get so a ton- if you need his email address, just buy our book. <laughs> yeah, and I get a, I get a ton of emails. Um, I used to respond right away. And what I found myself doing was creating this conversation that I unintentionally created. So someone would send me an email. I'd respond maybe within the hour. And then they send me an instant response back. And then I'd send another response within an hour. And then they send me an instant response back. Now I'll wait seven to 10 days. Mm-hmm. Like I will totally give a week to a week and a half break. Mm-hmm. And then I'll respond. And very rarely do I find myself in these unintentional conversations. So um, Peachy, you can set the expectation with people who are trying to get a hold of you. I'm not saying to wait seven or 10 days because there are certainly a lot of things I do not wait seven to 10 days on. But there are there are some cases where you know I do give myself that much of a break. The other thing too is I got the little notification that um, if you have an iPhone, you know I read your message. And I do that very intentionally. 
because oh, you do you do have that on yes interesting i do that very intentionally because i want people to know yeah i saw your message and yeah i'm giving it a second yeah i am tied up right now i'll respond to you when i respond to you because i want to set people with the expectation of they know when ryan is going to respond and and that actually has really helped me with uh just people giving me a little bit of leeway here's the other thing too peachy if people are giving you crap for uh, giving yourself a little bit of space to respond to things, great, you know who you need to get the hell out of your life. <laughs> like if, if those people are giving you so much crap because you're not responding to their text right away, well then uh, uh, maybe you shouldn't uh, be communicating with that person as much anyway. Yeah, you know, and uh, we, we had Ryan Holiday on the podcast recently. Oh, yeah. He's great. He, he's wonderful. His new book, Stillness is the Key. Uh, I think Napoleon came up with the original email hack um, so obviously there was no email around, but he had his secretary hold his mail for three weeks before opening it. Wait three, three wait three weeks until, till uh, it was opened. And he did that because most of the things that were urgent had already resolved themselves mm-hmm. within the three weeks. Mm. And then the things he actually needed to get back to were far fewer. And it also, as Ryan just said, set that expectation that, Hey, uh, Napoleon's got a lot going on, and uh, he's probably not going to respond to your letter the same day or the next day. Yeah. And and a lot of these emergencies are so-called emergencies, or things we think are emergencies. Mm-hmm. They resolve themselves if we're willing to just step back and take a breath. Yeah. We're actually working on a new product right now, an email product. Okay. Um, based around many of these similar ideas. Which and I, I won't get too much into detail. I'll share it with you when it's when it's a little bit further along. But um, this idea of immediate response is one of the major problems with email. Is that when I send you something, you get it the moment I send it, mm-hmm. and that sets up an expectation. And your inbox piles up with stuff you need to get back to. Now every email comes with an obligation and all these things. So we're working on something to to break that chain, break that pattern. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I like that. Jason, I want to thank you for being here today, brother. I think you've uh, you've created something really meaningful with this book. I can't wait to finish it. Like I said, in about a day and a half, I've already read through half of it. And it's a quick read. Um, it's very well written. And we are kindred spirits, man. I want to... I want to congratulate you on this yeah. and thank you for, for writing a book like this. Well, thanks. It was wonderful to be here. Good to meet you guys. Awesome. Is, is there anywhere I should send people besides your Twitter handle? Yeah. So at Jason Freed, uh-huh. um, we also have a podcast. So rework.fm okay. um, where we talk a lot about this stuff. Um, and then we have a blog, Signal versus Noise. Uh, if you go to th- the number 37svn.com. You can check that stuff out as well. Cool. And then Basecamp.com, of course, which is our product and our company. You're awesome, dude. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks. man. This is really fun. Thank you, brother. Thank you. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. See you, patrons. We appreciate you. Thank you. (laughs) Don Minimalists.